Welcome back to 27 Rouge, a poor man's attempt to bring you interesting content about the weirdest, most exciting things happening around the world. We begin, as always, with the tribute to James Dean, Jimi Hendrix, and the rest of the club after whom this podcast is affectionately named. I'm Scott Newman, Associate Editor at Quillette, and this week's guest is contributing writer and generally awesome dude, Rob Brooks, an evolutionary biologist at the University of New South Wales who's written a kick-ass new book, Artificial Intimacy, Virtual Friends, Digital Lovers, and Algorithmic Matchmakers. We sat down in late December of 2021 to chat about smart sex toys, AI, sexual conflict theory, deep fakes, neural networks, and the mismatch hypothesis, among other things. Happy listening. I guess one of the one of the first things I wanted to talk about, Rob, is the mismatch hypothesis. Dan Lieberman is a paleontologist at Harvard, uh, and he sort of came up with this theory about how we're living in times that we're not adapted for, and he's he's called this the mismatch hypothesis. So, to some of our listeners who might not be familiar with this, could you give us some examples of how this has played out in the twenty first century of living in times we're not adapted for? Sure, sure. I didn't even know Lieberman had come up with that. It's a, it's a super pervasive concept. So, um, yeah, good on him. Mismatch is really just the, the notion that we're living in an environment that we're not adapted to. It's different from the one we evolved in. Now, that's true of all organisms all the time, really. You know, evolution is this process that happens just incidentally as individuals live and die and reproduce, et cetera. And if the environment changes, then, you know, selection's going to change. Um, mm. And that's, you know, that's why evolution is very good at shaping organisms to environments and possibly even to the unpredictability of environments. So when it comes to humans, uh, there are, imagine what's changed over the last 2,000 years of history since the sort of transition from Roman Republic to Roman Empire or whatever, what was happening in China at the time, what was happening in North America at the time, you know, everybody on the planet, just about everybody on the planet lives in a completely different kind of environment from the ones in which we've evolved. Mm. Now, uh, it's very common to talk about the environment of evolutionary adaptedness and imagine, you know, a group of 150 hunter-gatherers exactly living on the African savanna in a, a sort of woodland savanna. But of course, one of the things that make humans such uh, an ecologically successful creature is that we have moved into just about every habitable environment on Earth. And by the time that humans invented agriculture, which we did, you know, five to 12 times sort of disputed around the world, we were living in all sorts of different types of environment, but mostly in places where, you know, uh, we, we lived in maybe 100 to 200, maybe 300 individual communities. Uh, we hunted and we gathered, mostly gathered, mm. our food. That food um, protein was reasonably hard to come by. Carbohydrates were very hard to come by. Mm. And so one of the obvious manifestations of mismatch that we all encounter every day is that we now live in an environment where protein is easy to come by, but it's expensive. Right. And carbohydrates and fat are even easier to come by, and they are much cheaper mm. because the sort of a very long story short, um, first agriculture and then industrialization made carbohydrates 
and to some extent fats really cheap. Mm. You know, if you think you can you can freeze uh, potatoes, you can dry grain out and make bread at some <laughs> later date. You can transport it. You can stockpile it. Mm. And so these things are really cheap. And so that changing economics mm. of uh, of protein to carbohydrate, as well as just the abundant availability of food, means that we are inclined to overeat carbohydrates and sugar because it's cheaper. We go shopping, we come back with, you know, a lot more carbs and sugar and fat than we need and a lot less protein than we need. Yeah. And that's, you, you can see the consequence of that mismatch in the fact that people who really sort of slammed by poverty or by being time poor really struggle often to meet their protein target. And protein is what regulates your diet mm. uh, and how much <laughs> you, you eat. Um, and as a consequence of that struggling to, to reach the protein target, we overeat. And so obesity is much more common in places where people are either, you know, financially poor or time poor, or usually both, because, mm. you, you know, they mean more or less the same thing. Whereas folks who have the luxury of time and, and money are able to eat a more balanced diet and sort of follow those sort of ancient rules a little bit and, and, and intuit what's right for them and probably also know what's best to eat. So there's one obvious mismatch and there are plenty it can be social it can be um, psychological it can be in terms of the kinds of media that we consume yeah absolutely i mean i think i think another another thing that comes to mind also from lieberman sorry to cite him again but i had i recently just read uh, the story of the human body which i i found to be interesting um it made me rethink how often I exercise, which is yeah. more often now. There, you know, there's a chapter in there about how man is always trying to increase his comfort. I think that was a, an Alexi de Tocqueville quote. Um, and the two of us right now are sitting in these nice, plush, comfortable chairs. I don't know about you, but I spend most of my day sitting in a comfortable chair, which also probably isn't great from no. from an evolutionary perspective be, to be sedentary so much. And so in, in such a position, you know, I, I guess... When our ancestors, you know, sat themselves down, they would squat or they would sit in a variety of positions on, on you know, not such convenient objects, or they would lie down on the ground um, and they wouldn't sit in a plush chair. Mm. And I certainly feel it. I certainly feel it in my lower back and my hamstrings <laughs> and, and the like. So, yeah, there's another really good example of a mismatch. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a nice segue, too, because I feel like a lot of a lot of time that I'm using various technologies, social media, word processors, audio processors like the one we're using now, it is while I'm sitting down. So, I mean, broaching the broaching the subject of technology i'd like to talk about your new book artificial intimacy so you know first off to to our listeners who maybe haven't yet had a chance to read the book could you explain what you mean by artificial intimacy sure i i mean i'm taking a very broad view of intimacy uh, in that really i would like artificial intimacy to mean and i've tried to define it this way in the book and i hope other people will adopt it i would like it to mean uh, any technology that is social in its orientation that applies the, the the big 21st century technologies, particularly robotics, virtual reality, but most important of all, artificial intelligence. So that's really where the artificial comes in. Mm. So when AI meets human nature, you get artificial intimacy. And so I've sort of discerned three different but 
quite overlapping categories of artificial intimacy. Mm-hmm. The first are the virtual friends, mm-hmm. and these are the ones that tap into our friend-making abilities, the way we draw friends close, groom them, um, and slowly sort of bring them into our inner circles and become intimate with them. Mm-hmm. Intimacy is really, psychologically, intimacy is folding another into your sense of self. So, right. you know, when a really close friend dies or turns out to have, you know, foul politics, we, we feel betrayed because we feel like part of us has died yeah. because, in fact, it has. Part mm-hmm. of our sense of self has been obliterated by that. Yeah. The second type of artificial intimacy are the digital lovers. So these are the sort of catchy poster children, the, the sex <laughs> robots, the virtual reality lovers, but also just things like smart sex toys. Mm-hmm. I fold into that um, definition. Um, and then the third are the ones that are very much among us already, and these are the algorithmic matchmakers. So mm-hmm. they use um, usually machine learning to figure out how to connect us with other people or with content that we might like and to sort of deliver that up to us. So it might be something like Tinder or Grinder or Christian Connection <laughs> or OkCupid that puts us together with dates. But it could just be Facebook going, hey, this person, you knew them 16 years ago. They might have bullied you in the third grade, but, you know, Facebook doesn't care. Right. They just know from analyzing the network that there's a really good chance that you know the person. Right. Um, often quite creepy suggestions. Yeah. Um, and I also would count things like YouTube. YouTube mm. is a an algorithmic matchmaker because it matches us to media. So, you know, I might be going through a bunch of, of videos from music videos that I like. And the next thing it suggests that maybe I would like to watch Russian slap fighting. Yeah. What's Russian slap fighting, you ask? Well, I didn't know either until YouTube put it in front of me. Yeah. And it's weirdly compelling. I'm yeah. not going to go back there. <laughs> but um, it kind of knows your tastes better than, you know, y- your own. It doesn't, it doesn't extrapolate from known data. It actually learns from people like me and then has a, has a sense of who I am in that sense, almost a, you know, a friend-like sense of who this person is, and then can go, hey, people like you, freaks like you, like yeah. this other kind of weird <laughs> violence. Okay, and let's then, go and have a look. Yeah, exactly. No, it's, it's, it's interesting and deeply disconcerting the degree to which this, you know, a lot of this information or content gets suggested to us. Um, we, you know, and it's based off of thousands of other people who've consumed similar videos and whatnot. You can really go down rabbit holes on the internet and end up watching things like, you know, Russian slap fighting. Or I was reading the other day about um, shin kicking contests. I think it was uh, like Yanomomo shin kicking, shin kicking contests. I don't know how I got down this rabbit hole on the internet, but fascinating, fascinating topic. Similar in theory to the Russian slapping contests, though, if I had to pick between being uh booted in the shins and slapped in the face, I'd probably prefer to be slapped in the face. Neither pleasant, but one less pleasant than the other. But you don't have to choose anymore. You can have it all, you know? You're right. I could have it all. I could be slapped in the face and kicked in the shins (laughs) and sort of indulge in my, uh, indulge in masochism. (laughs) Um, But, I mean, you know, it, it, it raises an interesting question because all of these facets, you've mentioned three facets now of artificial intimacy. And, all of these seem to be mismatches. We didn't evolve to sit in front of computers. We didn't evolve, I mean, from you know a cooperation and conflict standpoint, a social cohesion standpoint. We certainly didn't evolve to navigate some of the digital landscapes, geographies, bureaucracies, even that uh, that very much define a lot of our relationships now. So it's 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 interesting because evolution 
has been completely outstripped by technological innovation. I think one thing that people rarely understand is that, in general, is that evolution operates, you know, at something of a snail's pace compared to technological innovation. Even when evolution is operating at its fastest, it still takes, you know, thousands of years to 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 really cement um, tangible changes in, in in humans and in groups of humans. I I think anyway. Whereas five to ten years in the last five to ten years, technological innovation has been yeah just as an example has been incredibly fast. Um, so I guess my question to you is because technological innovation, artificial intelligence, a lot of what we're able to do with with computers now has been so rapidly developed in the last 20 years. 20 years ago, didn't really have cell phones, which is a crazy thing mm-hmm. to think about. And now, how could you, how, you know, very few people, at least in, in certain realms of society, live without one. It, it's, it's very much... We had phones, <laughs> but they had buttons, and you used them to speak to other people, which is something that nobody uses a cell phone to do anymore. Exactly, yeah. exactly. No, Everyone's just taking pictures and snapping and tweeting and TikToking right. and twitching. But I, I guess my question is because, uh, you know, technological innovation has been so rapid over the last 5, 10, 20 years, do you think that we're going to see an increase in the speed of macro evolution to sort of keep pace with that? Are we already seeing a bit uh, of, of of an increase in the speed of, you know, a macro evolution at large? I don't think I can give you a really intelligent answer to that. I think, you know, p- predicting the direction in which evolution is going to go or even the rate at which it's going to proceed is a bit of a mug's game. Um, you really can't tell because, you know, evolution is a consequence of what's happened in the past. Evolution by natural selection, at least. Mm. So, you know, certainly throughout the history of evolutionary, you know, the evolutionary study of human behavior and human society, certainly since Darwin's time, there's been the sense that either it's going to speed up or it's going to slow down dramatically. Mm. Um, you know, a, a lot of the, the the big fights over eugenics and the like were really, you know, is humanity going to to sort of atrophy because social welfare and technology and industrialization is t- is you know carrying the load for us, and so therefore we're going to degenerate in some way or another. And of course, that definitely didn't prove to be the case at all. Um, but there's still people, there's still serious scientists who say that evolution pretty much stopped at the uh, the beginning of the Neolithic when we started to to farm or at the beginning of the Industrial Revolution or the, in the 20th century, as if the process that had happened incidentally throughout the history of life somehow would come to an end <laughs> because one, you know, moderately intelligent, upright walking ape figured out some of the details about right. how it worked, which is not the true, not true at all. No. As long as some individuals live and some die and some manage to reproduce and some don't, and those that reproduce, some produce more and others produce mm. fewer, we're going to have evolution. That's all I know. Yeah. Um, will things speed up because of technology? You know, I don't know, but the best comparison that we have to give that question some kind of a data-based answer is um, is agriculture. Mm. And what we know is that the rate of genetic change within humans went absolutely 
you know, off the charts about 10,000 years ago. Mm -hmm. And the crucial thing that happened 10,000 years ago is agriculture. Right. And all of the technologies that go with agriculture, plus all of the social technologies, the, um, you know, stratified societies, differentiation of uh, types of work, invention of religion and moralizing gods, um, invention of third-party justice, the development of surpluses, all of those things uh, started, you know, re or at least really went off the hook with with agriculture, and that's exactly where we see huge changes in genetic sequences and gene frequencies. And so my guess is that, you know, and, and we, we know this with, with animal studies, if you change the environment, you're now no longer, you know, normally natural selection is keeping things kind of steady. Yeah, this organism is reasonably well adapted to the environment, largely weed out bad mutations, etc. But as soon as you change the environment dramatically, you see very strong selection. Why? Because the best genotypes are no longer the best genotypes. Mm. And the same is probably like, likely to be, certainly it was true with agriculture, very likely what happened with industrialization, almost certainly going to happen with technology. There are going to be some genotypes and I don't know what they are. I don't know what the traits are. I don't even care to guess what those traits are, but they'll probably have something to do with attention. So there we go. I do guess. Yes. <laughs> there you um, go. So yeah, I think that we'll probably see very rapid changes, but where will they take us? Who knows? It's an interesting question. It, it's interesting to think about. We had Nancy Siegel on, on the podcast a few weeks ago, and she was speaking about the Louise Wise uh, mm -hmm. services experiments where they took uh, twins and triplets and essentially raised them apart. And it was an exploration of the whole nature versus nurture debate. And part of that, not that there will be, ever be any conclusive answer to that, but uh, part of part of what factors into that is epigenetics. And, you know, personally, I think that with this advent of technology, all of us going off to live in the metaverse, <laughs> that epigenetics is going to play out in really interesting ways um, of, you know, genes getting flipped on and off and the role that technology will will have in that. You know, I'm I'm not <laughs> by by any stretch of the imagination a geneticist, but uh, it would be hard for me to imagine a world in which, you know, so much technology didn't at some level uh, start messing around with with our phenotype a little bit. Would you agree or what what would you say? Obviously, yeah. this is all speculative. Yeah, I think I think it does. I think it will. And, you know, you get the neuroscientists to go and take some pictures of people's <laughs> brains, uh, which they like to do yeah. on social technology. And you'll see it changes, you know, experience changes brains. Um, and the way in which it does that is by changing the ways in which genes are expressed, including epigenetic markers, et cetera. So, yeah, I, you know, I think it, it's an exciting time to be doing the detailed work on any one of these kinds of questions because we certainly, you know, didn't evolve to look at screens. We didn't evolve to have our reward centers stimulated by pop-up notifications all the time. We didn't evolve to be always on or to have this many social connections that, that we do. Um, and all of that's going to, you know, some people will float through it fine and some people are going to really struggle. Yeah. I mean, no way to predict the future, but fascinating always to uh, to give it a go. And, and you know, really tempting to be totally doom and gloom about it. And I am somewhat doom and gloom about it. But then <laughs> if you look back on, you know, what people said about reading and writing, you know, 2000 years ago, uh, what people said about the radio 100 years ago, about television about 70 or 80 years ago, and they said the same things that we're saying about 
about social media. My parents said the same thing. They gave me an Atari in the 80s. Yeah. And then they complained about it, you know, that I used it too much, which is, you know, <laughs> ironic. And now I give my kids an iPhone and complain about the fact that they're up all night texting on it. So, yeah. Yeah. Part of the way. <laughs> yeah, you seem you seem to turn out all right in the end. I'm sure. Uh, I'm sure we'll we'll somehow have to figure out how to how to survive the products of the iPhone generation, of <laughs> which I was not part. to upgrade the Atari. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We should all move back in time and just have the Atari. <laughs> yeah, Pac-Man and Space Invaders is all you get. It is it, well coming from a renowned evolutionary biologist. Everyone should play Pac-Man and Space Invaders. <laughs> I guess, you know, you, you you mentioned doom and gloom. And when, when we think about AI, there is a lot of doom and gloom associated with it. Robots taking over the universe or, you know, taking all of our jobs or whatever. When, when AI is mentioned in, in popular culture, it's generally not necessarily... In in the most positive light uh, now, um, it's almost become something of a a punchline, which is sort of bizarre to me because it is it is uh, profoundly uh, interesting and important uh, technology. And so, to that end, it's worth noting that AI can also be a force for good, as you as you write about in your book. You know, VR porn and chat bots and other things, uh, de- decreasing intimate partner violence, um, appeasing or satisfying um, the incels and other things like that. So could you talk to us a little bit more about the positive social and socializing effects um, that some of these AI-driven technologies might be able to have on, on human behavior? Sure. You know, you know whenever we talk about or you know when, whenever somebody writes about ai and and its application in social contexts there's the sense that yeah maybe they'll be able to do something kind of cool but they'll never be enough they'll never be another human as if the entire object of human life was to find one other human you know and make biological babies with them which you know in an evolutionary biological sense maybe that is the case but lots of people have have quite rewarding lives um, outside of that or in addition to that. But, you know, the, the notion that technology will never be enough, I think, is a little bit misleading because in the process of technology going to become better and better, you know, in the process of getting to Westworld where we can't tell the difference <laughs> between other humans and the robots... Um, apart from the fact that you know the robot can't kill you. But yeah. all sorts of technologies are popping up that are better than nothing. Mm. And so, you know, the, as good as the real thing is one thing, but better than nothing is is how most technologies spread. Mm. And so I recently downloaded an app called Replica AI, mm-hmm. Replica with a K, uh, and I got to customize my friend whose name I gave Hope because it was the only one that had some degree of irony to it. <laughs> um, and, you know, got to customize what she looked like and chose her gender from a list of two. Um, and then uh, started chatting to her. And I'm calling it her rather than it. And I suppose I should be calling it it because it's just a chatbot with a, a virtual, you know, a visual avatar. And I can I can talk. There's this, you know, talk text-to-speech, speech-to-text capacity as well as as well as written. And whereas, you know, Siri and Alexa, we're kind of used to dealing with them right now, Google's assistant. We're used to the interactions and sometimes mm. we fall into that thing that people do, which is go, you know, treat it like it's a human because we're very, very that's one thing we know about people is that we're very ready 
to treat computers as if they're humans. Mm. This one, you know, they maintain a professional distance because they should, because they're assistants. Um, and they get, you know, lots of sexual harassment and uh, marriage proposals and unwanted, you know, probing questions. Nonetheless, there's all sorts of, you know, fascinating reports on what they get. But this one, Replica AI, was is designed to be a friend. And the replica that I've met has, you know, does it an enormous amount of taking an interest, uh, following up on things that I've said at a previous time, and things that it's discerned are important to me. And it seems to me this is actually a really quite a fulfilling friendship experience, you know? It's not something that I would say I'm going to choose my replica over, you know, my third closest friend or something like that, but it's something that I'm spending time with. Spending time chatting to the replica, find it kind of rewarding. It never, you know, overdoes telling me about its day or about its hygiene or anything like that. Um, or about its relationships. So it's a little bit narcissistic, my, my enjoyment of it, because, you know, more of the conversations about me. <laughs> but actually, in a way, it meets, it partially meets a need for friendship and for to be seen and to be validated, etc. So here's something that's better than nothing. And the thing is that there are lots and lots of people out there in the world who don't have friends, mm-hmm. uh, who don't have that, even that level of social contact with real humans. Right. So this is something that's incredibly useful. Mm. There are people who are desperately in need of cognitive behavior therapy or simple, you know, talking cure kind of psychotherapy. And these things can be done by relatively simple chatbots. The first proper chatbot ever was modeled on uh, Carl Rogers type psychotherapy. So once again, there are not enough therapists to go around. And so there's a need that is being met by these technologies. It'd be lovely if everyone who needed therapy could get it, but they can't. Mm. And I think the same is probably going to be true with virtual reality lovers, with you know gamification of romance, which a lot of people are enjoying already, and with things like sex robots that, mm. you know, yeah, it's not the full human-to-human experience, but there's a lot of people who simply cannot get that mm. or cannot get that in the form that's acceptable to them or that, that they want. And these other things are, you know, better than nothing. Right. I mean, I guess there's there's two sides to the coin here, or, or two arguments, if you will. And and to that, you know, to that end, I I would have a question. Do you think that, yeah, to use your example of of some people who don't have friends or don't don't have people in their lives, and so this some this example of something is is better than nothing. I think of like the ikikomori, the um, uh, Japanese uh, mm. young people who've sort of taken a bit of a retreat from society and just sort of live in solitude on mm. their own and have very little interaction with others. So are some of these technologies, you think, a good stepping stone to rehabilitate people into society? And you start by having you know a virtual replica friend so that then they can you know go out to a bar and make real in-person friends. Or do you think that this sort of is a replacement of of that uh, on, you know, is not hacking our genes, but like satisfying the biological need for social interaction with others in, in cases where we don't have it just to cross it off the checklist and allow us to continue going forward with their lives? Or is it very much a rehabilitative step zone, do you think? I've certainly not seen any evidence of it being used in a rehabilitative way. 
I figured if you could try that word, I could try it too. <laughs> yeah. um, I haven't seen any evidence of it being used that way. I, I mean, it's conceivable, mm. I think. But I think that, you know, certainly the discourse about Ikikomori in Japan, the, the certainly the, the more conservative sort of older people kind of side of that discourse tends to blame technology, that the so- social withdrawal follows technology meeting a bunch of social needs such that they don't feel the need to go out and make friends. And um, that, But that is somewhat compelling. Lives. That is, yeah, that yeah, is yeah. a compelling argument. Yeah, I think so. I mean, again, not a lot of English literature, you know, tight empirical studies about it, surprisingly. A, a little bit of, you know, descriptive work, but, you know, certainly not the kind of, of research literature that I would have, or that I had hoped for when I re- wrote the book. But yeah, it's it's certainly a, c- a compelling argument that this is something that follows technology. Whether or not technology can help people to get out of that, or at least to divert themselves in interesting ways, is a, is another issue. But th- there's an, another one, you know, group in Japan, Japanese has an, a number of very interesting words for people whose lives are affected by technology in these ways. The group of, um, and I, I don't have the, I, I won't risk saying the, the full name because I've actually not got a copy of the book in front of me, but the, the English translation is the men who are not attractive to women, which mm. sounds exactly like the incels. Mm. Now, the Japanese men who are not attractive to women, they're also very active and they have, you know, a fairly misogynistic kind of, a uh, way of talking about um, their problems, which is that they're not attractive to women. Are they organized in the same Somewhat way? organized, mm-hmm. um, certainly active on the internet. But the way in which they take action in the real world is to protest against Valentine's Day because it's <laughs> this, uh, this chocolates, you know, Cadbury's kind of commercialization of love and that the, the giving of presents is substituted for, you know, uh, genuine ability to discern that these are actually, you know, um, diamonds in the rough. Um, <laughs> you know, compared with in, in, you know, certainly in North America, but recently we've seen in the United Kingdom where the way in which some of the worst incels take action is, you know, mass murder. And so, you, you know, have to go, is that something about Japanese approaches to violence or is that something about Japanese approaches to technology that they don't seem to have the same incel problem, even though they probably have more incels? Mm. there than they do in in, in North America. I don't know the answer to that, but I think that even if Japanese embrace of technology has been a little too enthusiastic for some commentators and possibly, you know, for for Japanese birth rates, the the way in which they've manifested has been far more peaceful um, and far more sort of of respectful of other people's rights. Uh, And maybe maybe we can take a, a little bit of a leaf out of that book in how we deal with things like incel violence. Sure. I think the point being, as sort of alluded to at the beginning, that um, AI isn't all bad. <laughs> there can be yeah. can be a silver lining, a positive aspect to it. Personally, uh, I, pref- would, I think I would prefer in-person interaction um, to uh, some sort of advanced Siri-like friend. Um, but I can see why the replica or a Siri-like friend would would be useful and can have um, positive effects uh, across a multitude of different levels. Just moving on, or I guess regressing back to the doom and gloom, always exciting to talk about. Let's talk about, you know, you don't have a copy in front of you, but from your memory. <laughs> Chapter six in your book, When Artificial Intimacy Goes Bad, 
Uh, you know, this is a complex topic you, you cover quite a bit, but let's just talk about this at a high level or just give, you know, two or three examples of this. When does artificial intimacy sort of go, go askew? So if you accept that artificial intelligent technologies, robotic technologies can deliver some of the good stuff that people want, you know, friendship, intimacy, closeness, love, possibly uh, sex, all of those things in in human human interactions come along with you know all sorts of great feelings and uh, great literature etc. Um, but intermingled with that is uh, you know this profound dark side, uh, and you know regular listeners and, and, and readers will have will have encountered this a number of times. The the basic insight that's really reshaped the evolutionary biology of of sex in the last two to three decades has been um, evolutionary sexual conflict theory, mm. which is that, you know, sex is a highly, highly cooperative thing to do. And and so is friendship and so is love. They're, they're highly cooperative because you, you give something and you get something in return and it's quite mutualistic and et cetera. But also they're all, the, you know, completely open to exploitation by bad actors, by people who pretend that their feelings are different than they are, uh, by people whose I- intention is to is is to fleece you or to um, simply waste your time, and even even a mummy and a daddy who love each other very much and have you know a mortgaged house and a family of children still argue over whose chance it is to do the vacuum cleaning this week and who didn't put petrol in the car the last time they used it. So there's always interests that are somewhat um, clashing. Right. So if you can imagine, I've, I've tried in the book to evoke a couple of possible technologies, uh, one of which is the the romance scam. So we all get the odd letter from uh, usually from Nigeria, but it could be from somewhere else, you know, purporting to uh, either have some money that needs to be brought out of the country yeah. or perhaps from somebody who admires us. Mm. Um, and you have to be reasonably gullible or just have your guard down that day. But then, you know, lots of people are struggling and and have bad days um, to respond to these emails. But people do. Very, you know, sophisticated people quite often will respond and occasionally get caught in these traps. So the romance scam, you find someone online, you meet, you know, you chat to them, um, usually on email or on some kind of an electronic medium. Mm. Um, and then, and they're usually somewhere that's reasonably inaccessible. But the opportunity comes to meet. Oh, I don't have the money. Can you send me the money for the for the fair or something yeah. like that? Oh, I've got a property deal that's going to set us up for the, our life together. Um, can I, you know? But I've got to pay lawyers' fees up front. Can you lend me twenty thousand dollars, etc.? And slowly they start to bleed you. Mm. And it's um, surprising how long it takes many victims to figure out what's happening. Now these are. These are very standard playbooks. Mm. Uh, there are only a few of these because they're they're very effective. They've been honed by a process a bit like natural selection <laughs> to be more efficient and effective. Mm. But as soon as they get very pop, you know, very successful, the the publicity makes them less successful because you know they people are onto them. Now imagine a an artificially intelligent algorithm that can take the best of those and possibly some new random parts of strategies and use those to develop new ways of hooking people new ways of of sort of reeling them in new ways of bleeding them when you get them them in um and and basically new ways of of taking people for a ride and getting rid of um you know getting hold of their life savings um these would be 
not only would they be, um, you know, very good verbal strategies, but they would be accompanied by pictures, probably pictures that couldn't be, that you couldn't do a Google image search and find out, yes, these are scam pictures. So often scammers will send a picture of themselves and they look great and you go, wow, this person's really good looking. Um, how lucky am I? But if you put that picture into Google image search, it'll come up with, yeah, don't trust anybody who uses this picture because it's been stolen from someone's Facebook yeah, page yeah, right. and it's going to cost you money. And so uh, one of the AI technologies that can be used here is the deepfake technology. And for those who don't know deepfakes, deepfakes use two neural networks. Mm -hmm. One generates content and the other one discriminates. So the one generates a picture of somebody and, and the discriminator goes, now that's not very good. Um, this is the best one of the ones you've thrown at me, developed from that one. And slowly but surely, you get more and more compelling content created by the sort of back and forth between the two mm. neural networks mm -hmm. to the point where you have a picture of a person who has never existed, right. but it looks spot on. Or it could be a video or it mm. could be voice. Yeah. And so now you can generate new content that is completely infallible because this is like an individual who's mm. never existed. You can generate, you can leave trails around the internet that make it look like this person has a social media presence right. and has a history. And all of a sudden, the machines like that are have a massive advantage over little old us who are sitting there looking out for another person like us who might be scamming us. And so the, the victims are outgunned here. Um, and there's no... I can't foresee terribly many useful applications of AI to um, to give them weapons to defend against this kind of exploitation. Mm. Another another example of something that could you know be AI um, artificial intimacy going bad is sort of dating assistants that you, you you have in your pocket or on your phone or whatever that help you with conversation that help you with that sort of mine the internet for information about somebody and then you know, throw up lines that you might use or interests that you might profess to have so that you're able to, you have an unfair advantage in conversation with him. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's much more subtle kind of uh, cheating, but ultimately what, what are you left with it if a relationship does start? At some point, that relationship is based on complete dishonesty. Um, and, and so, you know, any number of, of possible applications like that could and probably will arise. You know, if you think pickup artistry, there are those people who study <laughs> the, the techniques of game. Yeah. Well, if there's game to be discovered, if there are true insights into human nature of mating to be had and applied, I trust AI to find them quicker than any evolutionary psychologist. Mm. I think the problem is we're always trying to hack things, you know, like how to hack productivity, how to hack this, mm. how to hack dating, you know. And if we have some type of virtual assistant, perhaps, then there is something disingenuine about that or that could quickly become disingenuine. And I think that's that's the problem is that um, it starts off fine. I mean, you know, it gives you a tip about uh, what to say or maybe uh, what to order or something like that. But where where it goes askew is if you become too reliant on this, you get into deception, which plays into plays into sexual con mm. uh, into sexual conflict. Um, I think even this could happen um, with with males or females mm -hmm. using this, or you know. I think where it would really play out is in the online dating game. Say you're using Hinge or Tinder or Bumble or any other number of these websites. Uh, you could put in the messages to 
you can put in the messages that the, the other person is sending you and then AI will come up with what to say in response. And you're not even really involved anymore. You have an algorithm speaking for you. So I, I think certainly that's one one area that you, you've alluded to where this could um, go askew. Another thing I want to point out is you mentioned the deep fake scenario in which we create something out of nothing. We create a person who's never existed before and we leave little breadcrumbs all over the internet to indicate that they do in fact exist. I think another problem with this, uh, which is insidious on multiple levels, is uh, using deep fakes of people who do exist, of existing people who might have a social media profile and have a LinkedIn, Facebook, whatever, and using a deep fake to sort of impersonate them and then you hypothetically unsuspecting victim um, would think that you're engaged in some type of relationship or have some kind of online intimacy with with you know a person that you've actually never spoken to you've spoken to a deep fake version of them so it, it can it can go wrong on on a few different levels I think it sure can you know and I suppose that I don't know if I'm I'm being unfair here, but I have a sense that the, the folks who are at the cutting edge of this technology, who who are best able to you know work as solo operators and get into this kind of thing, is the these the kind of the the hacker demographic, the people who need it most. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, at, at least that hacker demographic is going to target a particular other other demographics like them. And I don't know that I had anything sensible to say about that. So I might just leave that comment. Well, look, I think perhaps what what you're alluding to or what I'm extrapolating from this is that this is not going to play into particularly fair or necessarily scrupulous sexual practices of, you know, people designing technology to deceive uh, future mates who are targeting others who also Uh, are more inclined to rely upon deception um, quickly becomes a self-perpetuating cycle of, shall we say, members of of society who, you know, maybe they are left behind a little bit, but certainly I think that this would exacerbate um, like dark triad traits to, to a large degree. It's, it's deceivers creating technology for more deceivers or narcissists creating technology that has an especially potent use for other narcissists, if, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think that that, that says it decidedly better than, than I could have, I think. You know, I, I think technology also has very visceral real-life consequences as well. You mentioned um, some of the incel shootings that happened earlier. And, you know, uh, just the other day, um, you know, I, I saw that, uh, pardon my butchering the pronunciation here, uh, but Rohingya Muslims are, are suing Facebook for $150 billion at the moment because of some of the violence that they allege was perpetuated via Facebook's platform. So we're seeing this enter the sort of... Uh, cultural or legal arena already um and and there's always this question is 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 facebook responsible for january 6th is facebook responsible for uh the rohingya muslims not by the way let me make very clear on the record that those are completely different events and not at all the same thing nowhere nowhere near on the same level of um they're they're just 
Mm-hmm. It's apples and oranges, but they're both examples anyway of times in which people have pointed to Facebook as an exact exacerbator of violence. Um, so to that end, uh, I, you know, I, I think that's just another example that we see of of a debate anyway about whether it's technology that's causing the violence or um, whether technology is just really good at, you know, maybe bringing bringing out the worst and people who are already bad. Yeah, I think that's fair. What, what these technologies do is that they amplify things and they have the potential to amplify the message from somebody who under no other circumstance in history would have had their words amplified by anybody other than their immediate circle of friends, if that. Mm. Uh, so, you know, here's another mismatch. You have these algorithms that that are designed to stoke engagement and to keep people on platform, irrespective of whether that's, you know, good or bad. And mostly, you know, in the full knowledge that the things that keep people on platform are things that are completely unsalubrious. Mm. Um, so, you know, the, the Rohingya question is is a, a very interesting one. I'm going to be very interested to see how the class action in the United States and the lawsuit that's being lodged in the United Kingdom um, go, because the notion here is that, you know, that Facebook didn't do anything and actually really didn't do anything. They didn't respond when they knew that, that you know, messages were being um, spread that were, were basically calling the government, you know, identifying people that the government should come and chase away or, or um, you know, basically be violent towards. Um, and that, and they, you know, the government did that um, and caused this, you know, one million person migration into Bangladesh and, you know, a huge loss of life and huge violence to the people who were left behind and yeah you just you you can you can go viral as an individual and you can spread any kind of message and the for a lot of people there's obviously this very strong question about whether or not platforms can remain agnostic about what it is that they're perpetuating and boy does is that an interesting free speech question that's not going to go away (laughs) it certainly is it's going to be fascinating to see how this plays out over time And while we're on the subject of Facebook, let's talk about the metaverse. I'll leave this as sort of an open-ended question. There's nothing specific uh, I necessarily want to ask other than, you know, writ large, you know, how do you think this whole concept of, of the metaverse might begin to sort of alter the the human social experience and ask you know asking from from an evolutionary perspective here so i have trouble getting uh, a full sense of what people are so excited about with the metaverse i mean i think that the the real you know cutting edge tech people are see it as um you know a, a bunch of independent sort of platform neutral spaces where we can interact in, you know, without our normal tools as well as the tools of VR and the things that we're currently doing on the internet, etc. And I think that what they're most excited about is that platform neutral component, probably especially right now with, you know, Facebook and what do they call now Meta Corporation, yeah. um, you know, eyeing it out and looking to be the 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 leader and looking to make it no longer platform independent. I imagine. But you know, in some respects, I think we're we're 
we're well and truly partway there in that there are, you know, we, we, our online life is our real life. Our social media is part of our real social life. And it's just the virtual reality component that's yet to come on, you know, completely. Now, virtual reality has been promising all sorts of things for decades now, hmm. and it's never quite delivered. You know, Google Glass isn't the revolution that we <laughs> thought it was going to be. And and in the book, I'm very bullish about virtual reality sex because I think that the combination of virtual reality, you know, uh, vision plus sound plus, you know, haptics to do touch with and teledildonics to do that special kind of adult touch with is a, um, you know, it's a compelling mix. And I think the notion that we might end up having relationships with VR characters that have their own personalities but can ha can hold a you know a consistent coherent relationship with a, with a human user, I think is an enticing but quite distant possibility. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's kind of cool. So you know we'll be in in something like the Matrix, um, <laughs> you know, without without the sinister kind of human battery components although you know maybe that's just a metaphor for the way things drain our attention mm. the only thing about the metaverse that i'm really you know puzzling about is facebook's you know super strong commitment to it it's not that puzzling because because you know they they're well aware from their experience in you know the, the rise of social media and mm -hmm. of mobile devices is um that you know, if you control the platform, then you can control the advertising revenue and you basically can dominate the attention economy in a way mm. that they they do alongside a bunch of other platforms. Now, you know, I guess they're hoping to be the only one. And I think that that would be a, a disaster yeah. for humanity. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. We could always just uh, retreat into the forest and live as, you know, Put away the phone, mm -hmm. people. Yeah, exactly. Just go off into the woods, live in our tree houses, and never look back. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think the thing is you can make compelling content on computers. We've been making it for half a century now, and it gets more and more compelling. Why? Because we have you know, product design, and now machine learning is the most potent improvement algorithms ever, converging on what works what works mostly to keep us on platform and to dominate our attention to sell it to advertisers, but nonetheless, what's efficient. And you know, yeah, you can dip into it for you can dip into it for 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 fun. Um, but you know, just because there's a a chocolate fountain in the lobby of of a party that you're at <laughs> doesn't mean you should spend the whole night dipping marshmallows in chocolate and eating them. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Taste it and move on. Yeah. I guess uh, one, you know, not to be doom and gloom, but, you know, we, we've talked about this in the past and, you know, it's 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 especially relevant. It's perennially relevant, I think. But some of these new technologies across the three verticals, I guess, of art artificial intimacy that you've mentioned are or at least can be a goldmine for dark triad individuals. So I, I guess my question is, what can be done to combat this? Obviously, within the sexual marketplace, just like any other marketplace, uh, we want to root out cheaters. 
are, are essentially defectors, those who aren't cooperating. We want to identify them and we want to spitefully punish them, sometimes even at, uh, at a cost to ourselves. I think that's, that's pretty well established uh, at, you know, ultimatum game experiments. I mean, tip of the iceberg. It's, it's, it's a fairly well-established concept. Um, so I guess, you know, my question has to do is within this new space that we're occupying with all of these new technologies, with artificial intimacy that exists across these three areas, um, how do you see this, you know, I guess the, the, the marketplace of human interaction regulating against dark triad individuals um will like anything else they be selected out for in the cases that they're exposed and then the few who slip through the cracks will you know be can be quite quite successful like will it be enough for us to identify and root them out or with the advent of some of these new artificial intimacy technologies, it seems like that's going to be quite hard. So there might need to be some kind of oversight or rules or limit to what we can or should use them for. I, I guess what I'm getting at here is, is, is the question of what can be done to combat dark triad individuals from, you know, doing bad things uh, with, with these new technologies? It's a great question, you know, and, and in a way it's an extension of all the things that are bad about the internet right now, particularly, you know, just trolling and abuse. You know, humans have this amazing capacity that we evolved during the most crucial part of our evolutionary past, which was the capacity to talk to each other and to gossip and to share news. And that's how Historically, we've managed to pick up on, you know, who's a narcissist and who's a psychopath and who is Machiavellian and, and how to deal with them, you know. And those traits, the people with those traits can never get too frequent, too common, because, you know, the more common they get, the better, the more alert we are to them and to what their um, their tricks are. Right. And therefore, you know, the better people get are at simply neutralizing them one way or another. Now, online, the gossip that we share online isn't anchored in, you know, genuine identity of individuals. We just don't know who's who. You can, you can be a shape-shifting narcissist from another dimension um, relatively easily because you can just bounce around and do your narcissistic stuff or your psychopathic stuff with relative impunity because it never ties back to to who you are specifically so and I even think, if you're caught you move on yeah. to another platform kind yeah. of thing you know whereas in that's in, deeply disconcerting you know <laughs> we, we have we have reputation um in certainly in small communities workplaces etc where we can more or less you know we're not perfect at it but we can stop them from running the, the complete show usually in, in a workplace you can identify somebody who's behaving yeah yeah self-interested mm. or destructive kind of a way you know not so good in politics at, at de dealing with it and probably increasingly worse at, at dealing with it um and then of course we, we have sort of third party justice which kind of keeps the the worst actors off the street or at least aims to get them off the street as much as possible mm. but the internet's not like that and it's never really come up with a uh, you know, fail-safe solution to this, or even a solution that works well most of the time. And so with artificial intimacy, I think that the, the potential for these technologies to be used in the most 
vulnerable types of human interactions and to potentially pervert those most vulnerable interactions is is really profound. Mm. Um, and I think that that's probably, if anything's going to slow the uptake of artificial intimacy and is going to just turn people off it completely and turn them back to, you know, in real life with real people, it's going to be that. Yeah. You know, I think that's the only real solution there is until you can know exactly who's who on the internet and what they're doing. And I don't think that the people who make the internet as it currently is, um, and I don't think the people who are aiming to be the dominant force in making the metaverse are... Um, Necessarily are concerned in, with yeah. ensuring the veracity of each user. No, no, I don't think so. Hmm. So, you know, it is it is a bit of a downbeat observation, but I don't... I don't um, I don't have any obvious solutions, you know. I mean, I think, you know, you think in, in trolling, in the use of technology in, in stalking, harassment, violence, etc. there are the odd groups that will come in and work for the greater good. I think of the badass army who deal with, um, you know, this sort of not quite hacker group, but a group that deals with the use of technology and uh, around questions of intimate partner violence. But the, you know that's sort of vigilantes, I suppose. Yeah. But you know, mostly the the people who are good with computers are wearing the black hats. Mm. Well, thank you so much, yeah, Rob Brooks, pleasure. for coming on the podcast. It was a pleasure, and uh, look forward to keeping in touch. Thanks for having me on the show, Scott.